1: An avalanche of prayer broke out over the past few days, and then we're joined by Justin Robert Young, host of the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Monday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us as we kick off another week here in the Chicagoland area. Glad that you are joining us. Hope that you had a great weekend. Let me encourage you just in a little bit, uh, kind of around 420, we are going to do something we don't normally do. We're going to talk politics with the host of a podcast called Politics, Politics, Politics. His name is Justin Robert Young. He is going to help me understand all that we saw happen in the House of Representatives last week. Uh, What did we see other than a big reality TV show as Kevin McCarthy uh, finally became the Speaker of the House? Uh, And then I'm also going to ask Justin for his kind of expert opinion on what to expect in the presidential race going forward. So very excited to have Justin Robert Young join us here in a little bit, but wanted to start by just something fascinating that has taken place over the last week. And I really feel like culminated over the weekend. Uh, you obviously, even if you're not a sports fan, you know that last Monday, we're now a week out from when uh, DeMar Hamlin collapsed in cardiac arrest on Monday night football. And it it was really touch, go, touch and go. Like he literally almost died, if not... For the heroism of the medical staff that was there on scene, uh, doing exactly what they were supposed to do in quickness, uh, quickly and saving his life. And Damar Hamlin, because of that, is doing great. You've probably seen pictures of him watching the games yesterday, uh, FaceTiming with his teammates like he's good, he's gonna have lots of tasks and he's still in the hospital. But it amazingly, if you had said, after Monday Night Football last week, that this is where he would be a week later, I think that uh, you would be amazed. It really is, in many ways, a miracle. But something amazing, crazy, unexpected, I believe, has happened over these uh, last seven days since DeMar Hammond collapsed on that field in Cincinnati. And that is, for lack of a better word, there's been an avalanche. There's been a revival of prayer. Like you're seeing it on football fields, right? Like yesterday, if you watched any games, whether it be the Bills game or I watched the Giants game or whatever else it might be, if you watch these things, what you saw going on was entire teams praying. And if you watched a lot of the coverage last week, as I did on shows like NFL live and ESPN and the NFL network, uh, you also saw pl- uh commentator after commentator praying, literally actually stopping in the middle of their shows to pray. There was something like we talked about it here on the show last week that when tragedy strikes like this in front of people, uh, it points people to God. It points people to their own mortality. It points us to the need for something like prayer. But but what has been actually amazing is to actually see people praying. I don't know if this speaks to how many people of faith are actually in football and in the media, or if it's just was that big of an experience that people are like, no, no, I'm going to need to pray. But you see people talking about prayer. You see people. Uh, talking about their own prayer experiences. You see people tweeting, prayer works. Prayer is important. And literally, I mean, Dan Orlovsky last week, uh, who is an outspoken believer, but he's a former NFL quarterback and he's a commentator now on ESPN. You see him on a lot of their shows, like NFL Live. He ended NFL Live the other day by saying, hey, I would actually like to take a minute to pray. The other hosts bowed their head and they prayed together. Un, unbelievable on a station like ESPN to have seen that happen, but it is happening over and over and over again and again. I think it's because in experiences like this, people are pointed to their own mortality. Going, man, there's there's something bigger going on, and and uh, and when you see a guy lying in cardiac arrest on the television on a football field we got to pray for that dude. We got to pray for that guy. And so even on the shows yesterday, I had somebody in my church say to me, Hey, did you see the NFL pregame show on Saturday? And I said, no, you know, just one of these normal pregame shows where they were laughing and doing this and that. He was like, you need to go back and watch it. It was 30 minutes of talking about God and talking about prayer and talking about miracles and all of this stuff. He's like, it was like a, it was like a church service. And so as the church and as Christians, what do we take away from this? I would say this, that even though it seems like many people in our culture are not open to having big conversations, to conversations about who is God, what is prayer, and all of these things, in reality, especially when tragedy and the unexpected hits, people are more than open to having conversations about how do I make sense of this? What do I do with this? I mean, it's amazing. Even in the Bills game yesterday, who DeMar Hamlin plays for. uh, I don't know if you saw this. It was the emotional kind of pregame show. And then the opening kickoff, the guy ran it back for a touchdown. And it was one of these storybook. It was, I saw somebody tweeted that if a Hallmark movie was made about this and they made this part of it, nobody would believe it. They'd say that's, that's too much. But it happened and the commentators and everybody afterwards was going, there was something bigger at play. There was something bigger going on. Friends, people are looking for the answers to what is that something bigger, especially when the unexplainable and the tragedy happens of a 24-year-old going into cardiac arrest. But then you see him coming back and doing well people are open. They've always been and will always be, but especially in times of great tragedy, people are open to the bigger questions of life. And the question for us as the church and as Christ followers is, will we engage those conversations? Will we step into those conversations? Will we go, no, let me tell you about my experience. Let me tell you about prayer or whatever else it might be. I think we fool ourselves to go. Nobody can. The people are not open to even talking about God. Yes, they are. We've learned that this week in the NFL. People are very open to talking about God, prayer, mortality, miracles, evil, all of the gamut that people are wrestling with these things. And we as the church need to be reminded that we are ambassadors of Christ, that we are to step into these situations and say, let me tell you the good news of great joy for all people. Let me tell you about a God who still does miracles. Let me tell you about a savior who has victory, who has already won the victory over sin, death, and all the like. So I was amazed by this. It was inspiring. And I think what's going to happen here is that DeMar Hamlet is going to keep getting better and better, and he's going to be fine. And it's amazing. I don't know that he's ever going to play football again, but that's a small deal in this. But he seems to be himself. The doctor said the other day, the lights are on and somebody's home, and it's amazing. And so I thought I'd say that in the beginning. Reminder to us as Christ followers, we are ambassadors of Christ. We are to proclaim good news, and we are to be there for people as they wrestle with these major questions of life and as you know from this show i've told you before sometimes i need some help processing the political news of the day and of the world so that we can then ask what does it mean for our lives and with that in mind i am thrilled to be joined uh, by the host of the politics 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 podcast his name is justin robert young justin how you doing today I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm doing really good. Doing great, man. Thanks for joining us. All right. Here's my, let's ask the big question. My overall question. Uh, I, like everybody, watched for the first time in my life, probably the other day, watching C-SPAN, watching all this stuff happening the other day. Uh, And I thought of it like sports and like kind of comedy. So I was like, oh, this is kind of funny. What's, oh, he didn't get it again. And there's all this, you know, I think we're used to reality TV in our lives now but help me walk through what exactly happened last week as you know they were trying to get a speaker of the house and why was what happened last week actually a really big deal
2: so there's there's a few different ways we can attack this and I'll I'll, I'll do the smallest but in my mind the most passionate first the reason why what you watched and what everybody watched no matter where you watched it by the way CNN Fox News MSNBC yep. The reason why it was as telegenically compelling as it was is because C-SPAN's cameras were allowed to move wherever they wanted. They were allowed to follow the action. They were allowed to zoom in. Normally what happens is that only is in existence during the time before a government is formed. And then Uh. once the government is formed... The government says, "Okay, C-SPAN, you no longer have cameras here. <laughs> we have one camera. It is the boring shot that you associate with C-SPAN. C-SPAN would love to look like what it looked like all the time, and no everybody doubt. would love to take those images and and repurpose them as all the cable news networks did." The rumor is that the the new majority might be into letting C-SPAN keep their cameras, in. but that, that's that's the first thing that that your listeners should know. The second is this is a scenario that normally plays out behind the scenes that mm. instead played out publicly. And by that, I mean, nobody has not done this behind the scenes uh, since the Civil War. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was 1855 the last time uh, over the, the uh, years between 1855 and 1856 because it lasted two months. Over 160 ballots that anything went as long as it did uh, over the last week, which was 15 ballots by the time that Kevin McCarthy finally got the gavel. The reason why is because normally a you either have enough of a majority where all of your malcontents who don't like the person who's going to be speaker or finds it politically advantageous that they would oppose the speaker within their own party can all vote. No, they can vote for somebody else. They can. You know, uh, uh, make T-shirts, whatever. It doesn't matter because you have enough votes to get you over the line. Mm -hmm. It's only in situations like we've seen over the last two Congresses, uh, which is another thing that people uh, and I feel like it's gotten lost in in the shuffle here is that there's a lot of conversation about Kevin McCarthy's very thin majority. Mm -hmm. And he does have a very thin majority. And we should be familiar with this because Nancy Pelosi had the exact same (laughs) thin majority. Yeah, Yeah. Over the last two years. So she had to deal with with exactly what Kevin McCarthy had to deal with. The difference is that Nancy Pelosi is one of the most legendary uh, House representatives of all time, regardless of what you believe in her political uh, views and what she wants to push and make law in the exercise of being in congress nobody counts votes like nancy Mm -hmm. pelosi she is known and renowned to do it that's exactly what she's done and so everything that wound up playing out in high definition for everybody to watch over a period of five days and probably six technically because it bled Uh into uh, saturday morning that normally happens behind the scenes everybody stomps their feet they clap, they yell, they scream, eventually they get what they want, and everything moves on. The difference is, is that the Republicans have a bit of a lack of trust i i think is is probably fair to say amongst each other, and so the 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 lines were drawn deeper, and they had to play out in front of everybody
1: oh, that's a great background, Justin uh it did seem like some of the most conservative the Matt getses of the world and other people yeah. Uh, They held it up and in doing so, got a lot of concessions. And so some people, I would assume rightfully so, are fearful that like, oh, uh, what did they get in the background? What does this mean for the Congress going forward? Uh, What do you think it means that certain people, uh, that Kevin McCarthy had to cut a lot of deals in order to get to this spot? Well, there is a lot that we do know, and that's going to be the focus of
2: Congress today today. Um, and and depending on when they do it, it may or may not have already happened by the time folks are listening to this, but Congress is going to vote on a rules package. Now, they have to vote on that rules package the same way they voted on a speaker, so everybody's got to agree on it, but in that rules package, there are some fairly significant differentiations between how Congress has been run and how it is going to be run for these next two years, up to and including Mm -hmm. a, a... referendum or we are not going to have what we have called in the past omnibus bills these mm. are those gigantic leviathans that are an amalgamation of everything that that get rammed through nobody has time to read it and then it goes to the senate and and it gets signed by the president because it It's a bunch of stuff that might not get passed on its own, but when you staple it all together with a bunch of stuff that absolutely needs to get passed, like funding the government, for example, then it can move. In this house, we will not have omnibus bills. We are going to have single bills, and Kevin McCarthy has agreed that everyone's going to have 72 hours to actually read them. These are things that... I think are probably going to be popular the more people talk about it because I don't think that a, a lot of folks are so entwined into Congress to fight for the idea of why the omnibus bills exist, which is that people are so disagreeable. They they will torpe- tor- torpedo each other's stuff just because out of spite. Uh, but that's going to be a, a big element of it. What we don't know is. Promises that were made on specific things or pet issues from Kevin McCarthy
1: to some of these Congress people uh, and specifically the 20 that we're holding out that we have no idea about. We will find out. All right, Justin, uh, you're you're in the political world. You're podcasting politics, 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 as we said. Uh, So here's the impossible question. We are now full run into the presidential ramp up. Right. We got like two Mm -hmm. years to go. I'm going to make you put on your your future-looking hat. You need to lay yes, down a substantial amount of money. What do the next two years look like, and how does it culminate for you? What does it look like? Rot, paint a picture what you think I is I will tell happen. you
2: exactly. I'll tell you exactly what it is because we're already seeing it. I'm so glad that we have dispensed with all this Congress talk because the, the, the presidential race is really my, That's my, what you my want. true passion. <laughs> Every – I'm, I'm, I just I live in a four-year cycle of, of being very excited. I'm at the beginning of excitement now. I'll be depressed by the time that it's all over in, in a year and change. And then I have to listen to Congress folk actually act like they matter. Here's the deal. Right now, this is a two-person race in the Republican Party. It is Donald Trump and it is Ron DeSantis. That's very interesting because Ron DeSantis is not officially entered into this right. race. Donald Trump did enter into this race. As of right now, I believe that there are two people that are officially announced or that have announced themselves as candidates. Donald Trump and I think John Bolton announced on British television over the weekend. <laughs> uh, but what you have seen so far is that a lot of the people that are dipping a toe in the water, the, the Asa Hutchinson's and uh, 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 Larry Hogan of Maryland, they're not attacking Trump. They're attacking DeSantis. Mm. They are treating DeSantis like he is the front runner, assuming that if he's tied with Trump now and Trump a month and change after announcing hasn't really left Mar-a-Lago. I mean, there there was an article by by Olivia Nuzzi uh, for New York Magazine that he has only gone between Mar-a-Lago and Doral his uh, uh, golf club <laughs> in Miami which as a South Florida a, a kid who was raised in South Florida let me assure you is I mean traffic maybe 2 hours but like like this isn't <laughs> exactly like he is uh, traversing the country yes so if, if he's been inert and DeSantis is having you know he had a Florida governor's inauguration where his wife was dressed like Jackie O, he obviously is gearing <laughs> up to be a, a a player here, and he is going to take on Trump. There, there mm-hmm. is no way but through in terms of that problem. Then a lot of people are treating him like the front runner, and I can't say that I think that that's a bad idea. I I yeah. I, I think Trump looks kind of tired, and w- whether or not he is able to summon that energy that he had in 2016 is going to be a major. A major problem because celebrity candidates, as we found out with Herschel Walker and Dr. Oz, have problems. They they don't like to work because they've been very, very famous for a long time. That's right. And they're used to getting their way. Donald Trump was somebody that bucked that trend in 2016. Mm. He out campaigned Hillary Clinton. And that's something that is very, very hard to do. Not necessarily for Hillary Clinton, but for a celebrity to out campaign a politician, uh, a politician yeah. is... Yeah is an issue. Now it kind of feels like Donald Trump is both a celebrity and old and kind of feels like <laughs> why do I need to campaign? I yeah. I I didn't lose in his mind in yep. in 2016. I should be able to just get a do-over. Uh, you should be thanking me that I waited 4 years. Yep. Uh, and if that's his attitude, he's going to face a lot of very motivated competition that
1: in my mind will be formidable for him. There you go. Oh, that's wonderful, man. Again, the podcast is called Politics, Politics, Politics. He is Justin Robert Young. Justin, we are definitely going to do this again. This was very helpful. Thanks for joining us uh, today. Thanks for spending some time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Aubrey's not here. I was by myself. And then I thought to myself, I don't like being alone. And so who better to bring in than our friend Steve Koble? back with us again. Steve, how you doing, my friend?
3: I'm doing good, man. I'm getting ready to head to Jamaica, so I'll be doing even better tomorrow.
1: I was about to let people know. If you said anything but I'm doing great or good, I was going to call you out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, going away uh, with just your wife, little people who remember you on the other day. You guys are about to have your second kid. Uh, yeah. It's a little, is this, a, a, it's the baby moon slash just want to get away, get out of the Chicago cold, right?
3: Yeah. I. I the weather in the winter wears on me. To where like if there's just one kind of five-day period of time, four-day period of time that we can get some sun, uh, it's enough to get me uh, ready to rock and roll and come back.
1: Is this one of those, I'm going to just make myself jealous. I don't know why I'm asking. I'm just going to get mad. <laughs> Is this one of those all-inclusive deals where uh, you put the wristband on and just eat to your heart's desire? What, what are we looking at here?
3: <laughs> it's sandals, Brian.
1: Oh boy. (laughs) Hey, if your wife cancels, give me a call. (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy for you, man. That's awesome. It's like the calm before the storm
3: of, uh, uh, who watches your kid then? Is this, uh, is this grandparents or what? Yeah. My mother-in-law and father-in-law, they live in Northwest Indiana. And so my wife took, um, took my boy down there yesterday. And so, um, I'm, um, I'm, yeah, solo for six days and I already miss my little boy, but
1: I do, yes. Uh, but you got to sit on the couch and watch football yesterday. So that's it's a win win. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> well, we're glad that Steve is joining us. Hey, remind people who haven't heard you before, uh, you are a pastor. Tell people about your church where you're at.
3: Yeah, we're, uh, we're a stone's throw away from, um, We're a stone's throw away from the United Center, Rush Hospital, uh, right there in the medical district. And um, we're uh, RenewalChicago.com online. Um, And, yeah, we we are a multi-ethnic disciple-making church that is uh, centered in the city of Chicago.
1: That's awesome. Uh, Again, I always like to tell like you always do tell people you're a stone's throw from the United Center. So that helps people out. Uh, You put multi ethnic in your description of the church. So uh, define multi ethnic church for people. And because most people are probably like, well, yeah, if people of different ethnicities come, that's wonderful. But this is a very strategic thing for you. Uh, for your church. So what does that look like for you? And more importantly, why is this, a, a, a for lack of a better word, a, a focus of yours?
3: Yeah, so it, it's kind of like one of those things, like if you don't put it in the vision, then it tends to become a tertiary thing and it's not mm-hmm. a focal point of uh, of who you are. And so we wanted to make sure that it was a part of the, it's the, it's a part of the centerpiece of who our church is and, you know, just living out all of the Ephesians chapter two, dividing wall of hostility has been torn down mm. um, and created. Uh, God is creating one new man in himself uh, through Jesus. And there's so many distinctions with the city of Chicago uh, of segregation in different sec- sections and sectors of the city that like it's just important for us to show that the gospel actually intersects those separations. And so if, you know, Even over the past couple of years, so many people have been trying to figure out how do we do racial reconciliation? How do Mm -hmm. we uh, how do we show off unity um, in the midst of some really divisive times? And uh, we want to show that the church actually does that best uh, and the church has the the means um, to do that best. Mm -hmm. And so that that's one of the reasons why we decided to make it a focal point of um, the vision of the church itself.
1: And everyone I've talked to who is, you know, again, uh, strategically and intentionally trying to be a multi-ethnic church for the reasons you've said, wants always to make sure that we understand it's super complicated and super difficult. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is why not everyone do. What, could people might think to themselves, oh, that sounds glorious. That sounds like a slice of heaven. Uh, help people understand what makes this really difficult. <laughs> <laughs>
3: That's such a loaded question. In it. And I'm like, there's this, there's that, there's this, um, <laughs> you know, in, in a lot of ways, um, there are cultural norms that um, many people in majority culture uh, don't even realize that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, they just uh, see it as this is how you do this thing. And, um, and the thing about it is, is that when, one way of doing something is the norm then everything is the other right and so mm. that's why i think a lot of uh my caucasian brothers and sisters look at other cultures and they say that's culture um uh. because that's different um and we're just sort of vanilla or we're just sort of plain. and the reality is it's not everybody outside of the majority culture is assimilating to what is normative and so when you see something that's different um it seems like an expression of something but really there's already another expression of something happening um it's just so normal to you that you don't even see it you don't even realize Mm. it and so because of that like that means that that shades every area of how you do church um that means that it, it shades your philosophy of ministry um it, it shades your preference towards liturgy. It shades how that liturgy plays out. It uh, it shades what worship songs you select. It shades um, how hospitable your church feels to different cultures and ethnicities. and um, And so you got to think about it in every area of the church. And so it's no small task. And I think that when people decide after the fact that they've started their church or their, you know, we need to grow in this area. They don't realize how much um how much effort it takes. Um it's just another adventure to take, but it's it's it really is like a um it's a big hill to climb.
1: Yeah. So this probably when I think about this, the first thing that came to my mind is like literally, how do you choose music? Because people in churches have a lot of opinions about music and uh, different, you know, ethnicities do music differently. That probably sounds like a silly question, but I literally am wondering, how do you guys even choose what you sing on a Sunday morning?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. See, So one of the things that I think is um, that we've learned over the course of time as best best practice is that gospel music has a lot of – intricacies to it it has a lot of um um in in many ways it's more difficult mm. um for on the musicians it's more difficult on the singers um and so essentially if you get somebody who's very familiar with gospel music then they know how to play contemporary christian music mm. because it's a more simple version of something that they already know how to do and so when it comes to um When it comes to worship, um, we have just a really talented and gifted worship leader named Damon. and, uh, and he's able to, to kind of throw on some Chris Tomlin and put a little, I say a little Lowry seasoning salt on it, on it (laughs) and, uh, spice it up a bit. And, and then he's same time he's able to play, uh, some Fred Hammond or, um, you know, I'm thinking of, um, the guy that sings jesus at the center um so he's just able to play a larger swath of different types of music and then we're just planning what's the sermon series what kind of songs do we want to sing just the same way that anybody else would um it's just being mindful of um of how those songs are sung who's playing who's singing yeah and then you go for it so check him out at renewal church
1: of chicago Uh, We're excited to have Steve with us, even though he's already in a bathing suit and a tank top and flip flops, getting ready for the. (laughs) I'm
3: in a hoodie. I'm in a hoodie.
1: (laughs) Mentally, I meant mentally. You're there. (laughs) (laughs) Thrilled to be joined for a little while today by our friend Steve Coble. Steve is teaching pastor at Renewal Church of Chicago, a stones throw from the United Center. By the way, I was telling Aubrey after you uh, filled in for her last week, I was like. Steve was awesome. And just hearing his life makes me tired because he just moved. They're having another baby. They got married three years ago. I was like,
3: (laughs) that just made me feel better hearing you say that made me feel better. Like, Oh, I need to be more gracious towards myself.
1: Yes, I was like, his wife still works. She's a nurse. He's pastoring. I was like, wow. Okay. So uh, yeah, check out Steve at renewal church of Chicago. All right, Steve, I think that you're going to have opinions on this. I was reading, David French, uh, right before the new year, we have David French on this show a bunch of times, but he wrote over at the Atlantic this article, there's no way to repair marriage without repairing men. And he said, our nation's masculinity crisis is the cause and result of the great marriage divide. He's going to basically talk about some of the statistics about marriage in our country uh, and he's going to talk about it through the lens of what he's calling a masculinity crisis. And so this got me thinking about us as pastors, trying to reach men. Uh, so let us t- let me just use that phrase that he uses. Do you believe that there is a masculinity crisis in our culture? And if so, what does that look like for you? What, how would you even describe that?
3: That is, I think that's a question that I've been pondering without mm. like knowing it for a few years now yeah and I've gone to men's conferences and spoken and um and really do believe uh you know in the the family you know you get they used to say you get you get the man you get the family yep um kind of thing and so that there are some men's conferences that have focused on um getting dads and fathers um and sort of like everything falls into place from there and uh and then on on one side I see like um women being empowered in in a lot of different ways that I think Mm -hmm. is really, really great and helpful. And, um, and that's what it should have been uh, all along, kind of a thing. And, uh, and then there's, there does seem to be this uh, sense of passivity. So you've got some, some like toxic masculinity that you're Mm -hmm. like, yeah, I'm glad that that's going away. Um, But then at the same time, you're like, man, why don't you just go ask that girl out? (laughs) <laughs> yes like just go you know and and then i'm i'm always um you know i i pastor i have pastored a lot of folks in their 20s and 30s and i'm like why why is everybody going online to find somebody to date like just go ask that girl over there you know who knows her which gives you an in and you know a little bit about her that's not just what she put up online um so you know, true and and that's just not that's just not normative anymore. And so I do have a, a sense of concern about that. Just um uh, the directness of, of men and sort of like even like when you hear people talk about relationships, it's sort of like I just got in this relationship and I just sort of after a while it just became a thing. And nobody asked, like, we like, are we boyfriend, girlfriend? Like, are we dating? It just sort of nobody took initiative. It just like everybody was passive in, in the process. And I'm like, man, I want to see a whole lot more really healthy, strong marriages in our church. And, um, and a lot of uh, men who are leading their families. And so I just feel like there's this mixture of different things happening. Some of it is really good and, and some of it is, uh, is really bad. So I'm not quite sure. I think the answer is probably yes. Yes. I,
1: so funny you say that. I d- started dating my wife in college. So that's how long I've been out of the dating scene. We've been mm-hmm. now married for 23 years in two weeks. It, later on in January, it'll be 23 years. So uh, I haven't dated since my junior year of college or had to like, and I sit, "This is a weird thing to say to your teenage son. We were listening to some radio show where they were talking about dating or whatever. And I told him I would be, so bad at dating right now yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, the whole online thing or this but I think what you say is important so you mentioned you've spoken or do speak sometimes at men's conferences like what do you say like what do you think the church needs to be saying to men or maybe more specifically when given the opportunity to speak to men what do you say
3: yeah a big part of, uh, of what I say usually has to do with um, Jesus embodiment of what I feel like manhood is. And some of it is just humanity, um, like h- how we should be as Christians. Mm. Um, but at the same time, um, this sort of embodiment of Philippians chapter two, um, he was completely equal with God, but he didn't count equality. We got something to be grasped, um, but he laid down his rights. And Mm. so my thing is like, how do you lay, how do you lead in such a way that you're laying down your rights for the benefit of others? And some of that means that it takes, um, it takes some courage in some areas that you don't feel confident in um, to be able to do stuff like that. And so Mm. one of the things that I think that maybe over the course of pastoring with uh, pastoring men over the course of um, 10 years now has been like how do they interact with their dad and how did they how did they how do they view their relationship with their dad Mm. and for a lot of those men in in my opinion there's this uh relational and emotional um um separation that dads have it's sort of like this this next generation is like my dad he went to work he made sure we had everything that we needed but we never connected on a relational basis. We never connected emotionally. And so, and you get different generations kind of evaluating other generations. But I think on this side of evaluating this generation of men, you've got men who are coming off uh, a larger swath of, uh, of divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got uh, a lot of men who are interacting with dads who don't know how to engage their emotions. And uh, and so they've never heard their dad say, I'm proud of you. They never heard their dad say, I love you, Um, stuff like that. And so my big part is like my big thing, I think, is valuing and embodying the relational and emotional and spiritual role of leadership in a home that dad is supposed to participate in. Yeah. And and those, I feel like, are heavily missing missing elements in this generation of men. So that, that typically is what I focus on.
1: How has that changed for you being a dad now, having a son? That has to be – is it, that does change – I've got a son. It changes everything, doesn't it?
3: It does, man. I, I mean I feel a lot of pressure. I feel a lot mm. of like I need to have a strategy for how <laughs> we're like doing stuff together and what we're doing, and I'm thinking about what he's going to be interested in. And, man, just as pastor, like you have those conversations with people, and oftentimes it's me and – it's this communication thing that where me and my parents are, where we're not, we're missing each other. Mm-hmm. And, um, and for whatever reason we can't, we can't get on the same page and, or somebody's hurt by something and, and, uh, somebody's petty about something and we just, we never can get on the same page. And, uh, and so that, those are things that I think about being a dad, like, Man, how do I extend grace, but how do I keep my son's heart? Um, mm. How do I be a disciplinarian, but how does he know that I still um, want to be affectionate towards him and want to have those deep heart level conversations? How do I make him feel like he doesn't have to hide stuff from me? That's right. Um, and so he can't talk, Brian. Not so, yet, but it's coming. <laughs> so, <laughs> it all happens so, fast, man. <laughs> yeah. So to, yeah. So I'm, these are things that I'm thinking of, and. Uh, But, like, he can't even – he can say die. He says die uh, at this point.
1: I I would give you one piece of advice. You do have a beautiful opportunity to at least make the first attempt at crafting what he's going to like compared to what you like to do. So, yeah, I put a baseball in my kid's hand at an early age. Or we started watching Mets. I wanted him to be a Mets fan. We started going to Mets games. And uh, sometimes it works out. Sometimes it does. Uh, Yeah, man. And you're about to have a second boy. So, you know. Enjoy that pressure, too. (laughs) We're glad that you joined us again tomorrow. Dr. Kelly Flanagan is going to be with us all day. Hope that you will join us. Until then, have yourself a wonderful Monday and join Kelly and I tomorrow from 4 until 6. Until then, have a great evening. You've been listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160.
3: Hope for your life.